guys may be seated, and uh, if you got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today, and so uh, we're going to cover quite a bit of this chapter in, in, um, and kind of look at, uh, we're still at the, really we're, we're wrapping up the second missionary journey of Paul. Uh, if you know the story of Paul, you know he went on three different missionary journeys, and then that last journey uh, that he took to Rome where, where Paul would die. Um, so there's really four journeys all together. Three of them were kind of missionary journeys where he was planting churches. And then that last one was just uh, him as a prisoner being transported to Rome. And so uh, today we're going to look at how Paul uh, kind of moved on. He was in Athens last time we looked at him. So let's look at the map real quick and I'll kind of show you uh, where we're going to be looking at today and some of the things that he's doing. Um, Paul has, uh, has made his way all the way up here. He's, he's been in, uh, in Berea. He dropped down into Athens. And today he's going to swing over here to Corinth. And this is the town that he's going to be in. But before we finish up today, it's going to say that he's going to set sail for home. And he's going to come back over and, uh, and, and, and briefly stop in Ephesus and then take a ship ride all the way back over into, uh, into Syria where uh, the church of Antioch is. He's going to make a quick trip down into Jerusalem. And so today uh, he's going to move from Athens to Corinth and then from Corinth over to Ephesus and from Ephesus all the way back about a 1,500-mile journey back into uh, to Jerusalem and back up to Antioch, which was the sending church that had sponsored him and kind of sent him. And he's going to go back to Antioch and spend a little bit of time there before he starts off on this third missionary journey that he's going to take. So just wanted you to get some reference points as we talk about some of these, uh, these sites and places that he's going, how he's jumping from continent to continent. And uh, let me show you one other thing real quick that's important, I guess, in our, in our discussion today. Um, this map is kind of cut off, but, but right through the, the area of Corinth was this, this canal that, that ran, and ships would pull into port here, and they would, they would offload their cargo, uh, cart them across the land, and put them back in the, in the water here, which would keep them from going all the way around the coast and back up. So Corinth was a very busy port city that, that ships would come in, unload, and then other ships would be waiting on this side to grab the, the cargo and head on out and be back up on this other side of Europe. And so Corinth is a very, very busy place. Uh, as most cities that are, are trade cities, the, the people that come through are, uh, are of a wide variety of backgrounds. They bring with them all kinds of ideas of who God is and what God's like. They bring with them a lot of immorality in these port cities. If you, if you can imagine the sex trades and all the different things that go on in those types of towns, a lot of immorality, a lot of false gods, a lot of things that uh, that, that, that scripture would just um, would, would speak against. And so Paul's going into not a city that's going to be this great big uh, mecca of Christianity, but a place that's very, very dark, a place that uh, is probably very open. And, and one of the things about port cities and about these, these towns where, uh, where these, uh, all this, this, this stuff may be is that while it's filthy and it's sinful and it's disgusting, it's also ripe for the gospel. Because these people will listen to anything. They, they will believe any philosophy. They will listen to and buy into any kind of religion. Uh, and so their, their minds are a little more open to, to, to the gospel if you can prove to them who Christ is and how that, uh, that he is the son of God. Then you stand a better chance sometimes in that than you would in a, in a town that was very religious but not Christian. So we're going to see him move into Corinth. Uh, he's, he's left Athens. He actually didn't get run out of Athens, which is one of the first towns that Paul's been to, that he didn't just get run out of town uh, on. And so in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. Now, that's not a very far journey. It's just a short job. Uh, 
And it says when he was there, he found a Jew named Aquila. Uh, he was a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy. So they've moved over from Italy back over into, um, into this area in Corinth. Uh, he came with his wife Priscilla. And, and it gives us a reason why they made that move. Uh, these guys are business owners who have recently been relocated from, from Italy or from Rome uh, into this area here in, in Corinth. And it says he came with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, who was one of the rulers, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So Claudius ran all the Christians, all the Jews, if you will, uh, out of Rome. Not Christians, but Jews out of Rome. They had to leave. And so he and his wife had to shut down their business and they relocate to Corinth. And they're there uh, working in Corinth. And when Paul arrives, he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. Now, y'all know what Paul did for a living, what his, what his occupation was and how Paul generated money? What did Paul do? He was a tent maker, okay? Guess what Aquila and Priscilla did? They were tent makers. And so Paul hears there's these tent makers in town. He shows up looking for work. Paul, Paul when he went into a town, it's really kind of neat, but, but when Paul went into a town to establish Christianity, he needed to be self-supporting. He didn't want to go to the lost world and say, hey, guys, can you all help support me? I'm a, I'm a Christian missionary. I'm coming to town, and I want to do neat things in this town, and I need the lost world to support me. Paul didn't do that. He wanted to go into town. He didn't want to be a burden on anyone. He would, he would try to find work, try to make uh, work with his own hands. And so he finds Aquila and Priscilla who are there. Um, they've just come to town. They're reestablishing their business, trying to get set up and, and to get going. And he goes and stays with them, and he works with them and, uh, because they, they all did the same thing. They did the same kind of work of making tents. And so it says, because he was in the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul's working during the days, but look what he does on the weekends. It says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul's working during the week as a tent maker. He's trying to earn a living, trying to, uh, to, to get some money so that he's not a burden to anybody and so that he can take the gospel and share it with other people around him. Uh, he's in a very dark city, like we said, that's, that's, that's kind of the New Orleans of that day, if you would. It's, it's just that kind of a, of a place. And... Um, and so he's there. Now, you remember he left Silas and Timothy back in Macedonia, uh, back in the upper parts before he left Berea and all that. He left Timothy and them up there. Well, they show back up here in verse, in verse uh, 5. It says, And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, the Jews have been looking for a Messiah, right? When we hear the word Christ used, that's just another name for Messiah. It's it's, it's, a, it's a Jewish way of, of saying they were looking for the Messiah. Now, what Paul's trying to do with the Jews is to show them how that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. He was the one sent by God to save his people. So as Jesus is, and as Paul is there trying to explain, he's trying to put the pieces of the puzzle back together. We talked about that several times in, in the past few weeks. But, but it's like the Jews have been trying to put puzzle pieces together. But the, the, the face of the puzzle is upside down, and, and, and they see these pieces, but they don't know how they connect. And so Paul, one by one, turns over the pieces of the puzzle and shows them how this picture fits together. How that Jesus is the one that God had promised. Some Jews would refuse to believe that and say, that's not our idea of the Messiah. That's not the Messiah that we read about in the Old Testament. We think the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to overthrow Rome, and he's going to set up an earthly kingdom here. And so they reject Jesus as their Messiah because he doesn't fit their image of what they think that he should be. Let me ask you 
briefly this morning, do people still reject God because he doesn't fit the box that they think he ought to fit in? Absolutely. Well, I don't like God because he doesn't give me everything I want. I don't like God because when I rub the lamp and say the magic words, I don't get what I think I should get. And there's still people today who reject God because he doesn't fit in their box. Well, it's no different than what the Jews were doing in that day. They had this idea of what the Messiah was going to be. Jesus comes, he lives, he dies, he's resurrected, and the Jews go, yeah, that doesn't fit our box. And so Paul's trying to help them to see how Jesus really does. He, he takes the same scriptures that the Jews use, what will be our Old Testament, and he begins to show them how that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies, and he's beginning to do that work. But there's a phrase here that, that all week long has just caught my mind, and, and, and it's really captured my prayers this week. It says that Paul was occupied with the word. He's occupied with the word. What, what are you occupied with? What, what occupies your time? Well, I would, I would walk closer with God, but that's, that's what occupies you. What, what occupies your, your thoughts? Paul says again and again, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. But, but how much of our time do we spend worried about this earthly stuff that really is not going to matter in the big scheme of things? Paul, when Timothy and Silas arrive, they describe him as being occupied with the word. Now, now Paul has spent... 13 years in the desert with revelation from God and the gospel that he received. And, and you would think, man, if, if there's anybody in the world that didn't need to spend a whole lot of time in the Word, it's probably going to be Paul because this dude knows the Scriptures. He's, he's the one flipping over the pieces and showing everybody how it fits together. And yet when, when Timothy and, and, and Saul arrive, he, he's occupied with the Word. That, that word occupied back in the Greek means be pressed into. It's a picture of something making an imprint on something. It's, 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 it's going deep, not staying on the surface. Isn't that a good sound to hear? Oh, I love that. It's pressed into. Paul is pressed into the Word. He, he's, he's, he's going deep into God's Word. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I look at Paul and go, man, I, how does he do that? And you go, well, Paul's a preacher. He doesn't have anything else to do. Is that accurate? I don't know how many people said to me, I wish I had a job like you, Rob. You work an hour a week. It's great. And I tell you, if you're blessed, you get these jobs. Otherwise, you know, you've got to get a real job. Is it true that, that Paul's just a preacher? That's all he's got to do. No, because the verse before this tells us different, doesn't it? What was Paul doing? He was working. Making tents, and yet he makes time to be occupied with the Word. This has challenged me this week to say to myself and look at myself and, and, and have the Holy Spirit examine me and say, what is it that occupies me? What, what is it that, that eats up my time? What is it that, that occupies my mind, my thoughts, my, my attention, my calendar? What, what is it? What are the things that eat up my life, that occupy my life? And, and maybe today, God would want to do an inventory with you. 
Maybe today he would want to look at you and say, what is it that's occupying your time? What's most important? Well, I'll, I'll read the Bible if I have nothing else to do. I mean, if it's just one of those days where there's nothing else, then I'm, I might pick up the Bible and read for a little while. Uh, I might spend a little time praying if, and, and, and you know, but what is it that really occupies us? I mean, it, you say, well, I got to go to work and I, I got to earn a living. Well, so did Paul. Well, I've got to, and we fill in the blank with all, you know, I've got all these kids and I've got all this responsibility. I've got to, well, yeah, that's called life. And if we use that as our out of why we never are occupied with the word or occupied with God, then we're never going to change. And we're never going to be any stronger in our faith, any deeper in, in, in Christ than we are right now. So what, what occupies you? What is it that, that occupies your time? Paul was occupied with the word. But he wasn't just burying his head in, in the word and, and never looking up. It says he was occupied with the word. And look at why he occupied himself in the word. Because he was busy testifying to the Jews. Paul wanted to keep learning. He wanted to keep growing. He wanted to, to keep maturing in the faith because he was continuing to share the gospel, to testify with the Jews that, 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 that the Christ was Jesus. So he's got to be in the word in order to have something to share with other people. And this is the real balance, guys, is that if I want to be effective in sharing the gospel with my world, which is why Christ leaves us here. If, if, if evangelism was not a part of what we need to do and discipleship was not a part of what we need to do, then the moment you get saved, why wouldn't God just take you on to heaven? But he leaves us here so that what he's pouring into us can be poured into other people. But here's, here's the deal. You'll, you'll, you'll see this very quickly in your life if you get involved in ministry. If you don't have someone pouring into you, it's not going to be long until you run out and don't have anything left to pour into others. Now, the way that God pours into us, guys, is as his Holy Spirit takes the word of God and, and opens our heart to see it and to understand it. So Paul is, is, is juggling a lot of things here. He, he's doing what you and I try to do every day where you try to find that balance between I, I got to make a living and I need to be deep in God's word. And yet it's not just for me, but it's for me to be able to testify to others what God's been doing and what the Bible says. And, and so Paul's still seeing God flip over some pieces for him. And, and as, as Paul's learning even more of the picture, he's, he's making that known to others. And this is really what the gospel is really all about. It's not just about you making a living and earning for your family. That's, that's important. We need to eat. But it's about you figuring out a way to make a living and at the same time go deep in God's word. But you don't just go deep in God's word so that you're smart and well thought of. You go deep in God's word so that you can testify to other people and so that they can then participate in what Christ is doing to help them grow. So Paul moves in with this guy named, named Aquila, his wife named Priscilla, and, and he lives with them. But don't, don't you know that Paul's discipling these guys as he's going? He's living in their house. They're working together. And don't you know the conversation, even as they're making the tents and they're sewing the, the seams and they're doing all the work that tent makers have to do, don't you know that even in the middle of all that, Paul is sharing with those guys the gospel? And he is discipling them and he's maturing them. And, and we're going to see a, a process of discipleship here that takes place in this passage that is so cool. Because even as Paul works, he doesn't waste his time at work. How many of you see work just as a necessary evil? Well, I've got to go to work. And, and you see work as just this thing that you go do, but you don't see it as an opportunity for ministry. You don't see that as your mission field. Maybe you don't see that as an opportunity to, to take the gospel to those people. I was thinking last night as I was spending some time in prayer going, you know, we, we, we've gone through this thing here in America now where, we, where we've got to take God out of the school. Okay, great. What does that do to the school? Well, we've got to take God out of government. 
What does that do to our government? We take God out of the workplace. Well, then you've got to have the EPA and OSHA and everybody else. to. When you take God out of stuff, it just it implodes. And, and, and you've got to have something else to try to hold it back up. And here we are saying, how do we include God? If Christians don't take God into the workplace, then that workplace is going to be a dark, dark place. And so sometimes what we do is we forget that, that our work is not just a way for us to make a living, but it's a way for us to, to disciple and to encourage and to share the gospel with other people. Our workplace is where we spend a lot of our time. We spend 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day in, in a place with other people. Why not use that as an opportunity to shine the light of Jesus Christ with those guys? You say, well, if I do that, they may fire me. Okay. Do you trust God enough that if they do, he's got another place for you to work and earn a living? See, Rob, that's, that's, that's a big risk. Guys, who are we talking about these last several months? Paul, who took risk after risk after risk after risk and kept saying, my God shall supply all your needs. This, sometimes we detach from these guys and we, we put Paul on this pedestal. It was St. Paul. Paul was a man just like us who's trying to juggle work and his, his, his relationship with Christ and his calling to share the gospel with other people. He's trying to juggle all these things. And, and so sometimes we, we make these guys larger than life and we forget that they are a lot more like us than we want to believe. And so here he is, occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews. And then he says, when they opposed him and they reviled him, so they, they, they push back against him and then they attack him. They, they revile him. They're going to use their words to, to try to discredit him and tear him down and, and label him. He says he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I've shared with you the gospel. You have resisted it. I am now innocent, he says. From now on, I'm just going to take the gospel of the Gentiles. Paul always goes to the synagogue. The Jews always seem to push back and reject. And then he steps outside the synagogue and begins to share with the Gentiles. Now the neat thing is, look, he, he says he, he left there, verse 7, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. How convenient. The synagogue kicks me out. All right, we'll just move next door. And we'll hold church here. And there's this guy named Titus Justice, just an ordinary Joe. Just a guy who happens to have a house next door to the synagogue. Who's heard the message, who's responded evidently to the message. And now he says, my house is yours, Paul. Come you know maybe if we set up next door to the synagogue some of these guys will listen through the windows they didn't have windows back then did they had holes and hear the gospel paul maybe if you preach loud enough the people in synagogue can hear what you're saying maybe paul if you if you set up right next door to the synagogue maybe we can still reach some of those jews who who may be interested but are afraid of their friends and they're afraid to to commit they're afraid to to stand up you know it's it's maybe one of those things where if we just stay next door maybe Maybe just maybe God can do something. Another ordinary Joe named Titus Justice who says, if I've got it and you need it, it's yours. Isn't that the way we're supposed to live anyway? If God's given me something that you need, it's yours. That's what we're called to do. We, we tend to think we own it all. It's mine and I've got to protect it. What if his house gets raided the way that the guy's house got raided back in Athens? And these other places where they dragged that guy, the homeowner, into court. 
He's like, I'm willing to take that risk. An ordinary guy who says, you know what? Let me use what God's given me for God's glory. What if we all started doing that? What if we all said, you know what? My time is not mine, it's God's. My home is not mine, it's God's. My, my vehicle is not mine, it's God's. My, my, my life is not mine, it's, it's God's. And what if we just started using the stuff that we already have for the glory of God? Some of you do that. You open up your home and the gospel community comes and meets there. That takes extra work, extra money, extra time. But you said, you know what? It's not mine, it's God's. And he can do that. So he opens up his house next door to the synagogue. And look what happens. Verse 8. Crispus, what a name. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, right next door, believed. Crispus, the, the ruler of the synagogue, right next door, believed in Jesus and the Lord. Together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And here's something interesting. Here's the leader of the synagogue who probably, if Paul had continued to meet in the synagogue, would have felt the pressure from all the other synagogue leaders and all the other synagogue uh, attendees that, that, that he, he can't commit publicly to, to Christ because, well, I'm the leader. Paul moves next door, and this guy continues to hear the gospel. You know, Paul's probably preaching there several times a week in this guy's house. And this leader, this ruler of the synagogue, puts his faith in Jesus Christ. And, and not just him, but his whole family believes. And, and other Corinthians hear Paul, and they believe, and they were baptized. And here's the interesting thing. Look down with me just real quick. Let's jump to verse 17. It says, They all seized a man named Sothenius, the ruler of the synagogue. Wait a minute. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Now, just a few verses later, Sothenes is the leader of the synagogue. What's up with that? It cost Crispus something to follow Jesus. He was the dude, the leader, the ruler of the synagogue. And it doesn't tell us if he was fired or if he just said, I, I can't leave this and follow Jesus. But either way, his position with the synagogue is done. He's, he, did you get the impression that when people chose to follow Jesus in the New Testament, it cost them something? Here, here's a guy who is the leader. He's the ruler of the synagogue, and he and his family put their faith in Christ. And whether they walked away or whether they were shoved out the door, we're not told. But he forfeited his position to follow Jesus. So he's done, and, and, and then these other Corinthians are believing, and so they're meeting here at Justice's house, and, and it says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Think about Paul and all the things that he had to be afraid of. Why would the Spirit of God say to Paul, Don't be afraid? Probably because he was afraid. Look real quick. If you've got your Bibles, look in 2 Corinthians real quick. Chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Just the first five verses. And listen to Paul's descriptions. He writes a letter back to this church of Corinth. Okay? The church that he's at right now. He's going to be writing back about two to three years later. 
And he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with this wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible or persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How, what, what condition was Paul in when he got to Corinth? He said, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Listen, man, everywhere Paul had been, He'd been abused. Everywhere Paul been, he'd been, he's been run out of town. Now, now Athens, we, we don't get an impression that he was run out of Athens, but there was some opposition to him there. And so back here in Acts 18, when the Spirit's talking to him in, in this vision at night, he says, look, I don't want you to be afraid. I, I see your fear, Paul. I see that, 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 that the Jews have rejected you again, and you're thinking, oh, here we go again. Here we go again. How many beatings am I going to get this time? What's going to happen in this city? And the Spirit says, don't you be afraid. And, and I just want to pause a second and say to you that some of you have stood for Christ and it's cost you something. You've taken stands and it's cost you with your family. You've taken stands and it's cost you in your career. You've taken some stands for, for Christ and, and you've paid the price for doing that. And, and, and now you may be in another position to where you're, you're in, a, in a fresh start and, and all of a sudden you're going, oh gosh, I see deja vu. This is going to happen again. And you need to hear God's word saying, look, Paul, don't be afraid. For I'm, I'm with you in this. I, I've got you here for a reason. I, I placed you here. And it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be perfect. But, but I, I'm going to walk with you through this. And so he says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So here's God ministering to his servant, Paul, and saying to Paul, Paul, look, don't be afraid. I, I know, I see your heart, I see you're trembling, you, you feel weak, you feel, you feel anxious, but, but don't be because I'm with you and, and I'm going to protect you. In verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That may be a record so far for Paul. He stayed in, in, in Antioch for about a year, but now here he's going to get to stay in this town for a year and a half. It's a lot of work to do in Corinth, a lot that God had for him to do. And he's, he, makes a, he makes a promise to Paul, look, they're, they're not going to attack you and harm you. I've got some people here that, that, are, that are working that you don't even know about right now, Paul. I've got some people that are doing some things that you don't know about. I've got you, Paul. I've got you protected. You just keep preaching and keep speaking. And so he stays a year and a half. And it says, but when Galileo was the proconsul of Achai, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Wait a minute. Didn't God just say to Paul, they're not going to attack you? And now they're making a united, a united attack on Paul. But he says up here, just to be specific, no one will attack you to harm you. So they're, they're not going to get away with this. They're, they may attack, but they're not going to harm you, Paul. So here they go. They, they attack him. And it says the Jews made this united attack on Paul and they brought him before the tribunal. And they said, this man is preaching to people, or this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Again, a great epitaph to put on a tombstone, right? 
This man spent his life persuading people to worship God. The problem was he didn't worship God according to the Jewish box, according to the Jewish mindset. He called them to worship God in spirit and in truth. And they say, we can't, we can't deal with that. So they bring him before the tribunal. They, they accuse him of persuading people to worship God contrary to the Jewish law. And then it says, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, in other words, Paul's about to defend himself. Instead, the leader, Gallio, stands up and says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a vicious crime, in other words, if this guy had done something wrong, seriously wrong, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since this is just a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, then you need to see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. He throws it out of court. He tosses it out of court. And it says, and he drove them from the tribunal. Get out of here. Wasting my time. And then they all see Sothenius, the new ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. It's kind of funny. Here's this new leader who's decided to drag Paul into court. And court doesn't go so well. And by the time the, the, the leader kicks him outside the courtroom, they beat him right out there on the steps. And they beat their Jewish leader. Now, I shouldn't laugh about that, but I think it's kind of funny that this guy, here's God saying, I'm going to protect you, Paul. And they arrest Paul. And Paul's like, I thought you were going to protect me, Lord. The judge throws it out, kicks him outside the court. And the leader, the ramrod, who was the new ruler of the synagogue, gets beaten instead of Paul. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, I want to say something here because I think you just need to follow up on this. Sothenius, the man who was the new ruler, by the way, if you would read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Look what happens here. Let me get there. Here's a verse. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenius. The dude gets saved. He becomes Paul's brother and he's with Paul when Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. Dude, this guy is, is, is trying to get Paul beat. He gets beaten in Paul's place and somehow in the middle of all that, God works in a way that this dude gets saved. And now he's Paul's brother in Christ. Tell me that God is not a miracle-working God that can take the worst of situations and turn them around to our good. So now we've got two synagogue rulers that have gotten saved under Paul's preaching. Because a man next door said, if my house can be useful, use it. Somebody who just took something they had and said, if God can use this, let him use it. Titus is not a hero, but he really is. He's not a guy that we talk a lot about, but, but he's an ordinary guy like you and I who just said, look, anything I've got, if it can be used by God, let it be used of God. And two synagogue rulers come to know Jesus as they met in his house next door. Let's keep going. It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers. And so he's going to leave. He's going to take off from Corinth. And he says he set sail for Syria. Now, Syria is, is where Jerusalem is. Back over on our map, it's back down at the bottom where, where Jerusalem is. So when we get back over to Syria, here's, here's Syria. So he's going he's gonna to leave over here and come all the way back to Syria. But as he gets ready to make this trip back, they're going to make a pit stop in, in Ephesus. 
Most of these guys, when they traveled by sea, would get on cargo ships, okay? So these cargo ships would stop in other ports along the way. And, and uh, so they don't have, you know, these cruise liners like Thomas and Diana. Or, did I mention that those guys left us to go to Hawaii? Terrible. Yeah, they didn't get that in this day. They jump on a cargo ship that's hauling cargo from one place to the other. And it stops in Ephesus. Well, Paul didn't want to waste time. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to waste an opportunity. So he, he gets in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila are going to travel with him. So it says, he stayed there many days longer, and he took leave of them, and he set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, this tells you something about what's going on between Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. Paul has, has met them here in Corinth. He's been there a year and a half. He stayed with them. He's worked with them. They've become family together. And now Paul's getting ready to, to take off and to go somewhere else. And guess who's going to go with him? Priscilla and Aquila. They've just reestablished a new business in a new town. Probably just getting that thing off the ground, getting it going. And they said, you know what? Jesus is more important than our business. Paul, can we go with you? And Paul says, man, y'all, come on. We've got work to do. We've got things that we need to do. And, and so they travel with Paul. And, and, and they head out. And then this is kind of a, a weird saying here, but I'm going to explain it to you. It says that Centuria, he had his hair cut. So Mandy... He shows up at the salon. He says, hey, I, I got to have a haircut. Actually, it wasn't a good haircut. He has his hair cut off. For he was under a vow. So let me, let me stop and kind of unpack what, what's going on here. Most scholars believe that this was a, a Nazarite vow that, that Jews would take. Um, it was a, usually out of gratitude or out of thanksgiving. In other words, if, if God had really blessed you or God had really done something uh, uh, powerful and, 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 or maybe he's rescued you from something... It was a common place as a, as a, as a, as a, a show of thanksgiving to, to take a Nazarite vow. Now, remember John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Uh, Samson was a Nazarite. We've seen these, these people that have done that. But, but it was more common for a Jew for maybe a month to two months to, 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 to take on this Nazarite vow. And what that would involve was that they would not cut their hair. They would let it grow. Uh, they would not do anything. They would not eat or drink anything that was connected to the grapevine. Okay. So you couldn't eat grapes, you couldn't eat wine, drink wine, you couldn't do anything that was attached to the, the anything that, with, the, with the grapevine, okay? Uh, remember John the Baptist was not to drink any kind of alcohol, any kind of stuff like that, so that was part of that Nazarite vow. So they believed that Paul took this Nazarite vow. At the end of that month or two-month period, uh, you would shave your head, and you would take all the hair that they cut off, and then it would be taken to the altar in Jerusalem where they sacrificed the animals, and that hair would be laid on the altar and consumed as an offering back to God. That was part of a Nazarite vow. We're not told why Paul decided to do that unless it was the fact that God had made a promise to him and said, look, nobody's going to harm you here. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. And then God followed through and did that. And Paul just says, Lord, I, I don't know a better way. Now, Paul was not required to do that, but, but it, was, it was part of his Jewish heritage where they would do that from time to time. And he may have said, Lord, this is the only way I know, the best way I know to show you that I'm grateful for your deliverance. I'm grateful for your protection that you just gave me in Corinth. And so he lets his hair grow for that period of time. He doesn't, he doesn't touch grapes. He doesn't do all that kind of stuff. And then he gets to Centuria and he has his hair cut. Now here's the thing. Part of the custom and part of the, the, the requirement of that Nazarite vow was that when you cut your hair, it was allowable if you were out of town when you got your hair cut, you had 30 days to get your hair to the altar in Jerusalem. That was part of that custom. So Paul goes into Ephesus. He has his hair cut there in Centuria. He goes into Ephesus. He has his hair cut. 
And, uh, and then it says, and then they came to Ephesus. So he goes from Centuria to, to Ephesus. His hair's been cut. He's got it in a ponytail. He's holding it. He's ready to give it to the, to the altar. It says, and then he left them. He, he left Priscilla and Aquila there, okay, in Ephesus. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Why would he decline? He's got 30 days to get to Jerusalem, okay? And he's serious about the vow that he's taken, okay? So he says, I can't stay. I've got, I've got to go. But on taking his leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for, from Ephesus. Now, in chapter 19, verse 1, Paul's going to start his third missionary journey, and one of the first places he's going to end up is back in Ephesus, okay? So he's good to his word. I'm going to come back, but I've got to fulfill this vow that I've, that I've just made. So he's had his hair cut. He's, he's gathered the hair. He wants to take it back to the altar and, and present that before the Lord as a, as a way of saying thanks to God. And so he, he, he lands there in Ephesus. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. And it's interesting that he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and God's going to use them to disciple somebody else, who then he's going to use to disciple people back in Corinth. So it's this, it's this cycle of, 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 of discipleship that we're going to see. So real quick, let's look at this. He says, I'll return to you if God wills, and he sets sail from, from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, that's back near Jerusalem, it says he went up and he greeted the church and he went down to Antioch. You go, where's Jerusalem in that? Anytime you read that they went up to the church, it didn't matter if you're coming from the south going north or if you're coming from the north going south. When you went to Jerusalem, you went up. And when you went anywhere else, you went down. It was an elevation thing, not, not north, south, east, west. It was elevation thing. So when it says here that he went up and he greeted the church, that's the church in Jerusalem. That's where he would have presented his hair and fulfilled the vow. Okay? And then he went down, which Antioch is actually north of Jerusalem. So go back to the map just a second. If we look at the map... We, we've, got, we've got Jerusalem down here, okay? We've got Antioch up here. He's going to go down to Antioch. It's an elevation thing, okay? So he, he comes across. Uh, they, they set sail from, from Ephesus here. They come down through this area, and they come back, and they land in here. He goes uh, to Jerusalem. This is Caesarea where they landed. He goes to Jerusalem first. He, he presents the, the vow, finishes that, and then he's going to make his way back up here to Antioch, which, again, is the sending church of where he started, and he finished each of his missionary journeys, okay? So... He, uh, he, he heads down to Antioch, and then, and just, to, just this, it just says, and after spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the regions of Galatia and, and, and Phygeria, strengthening all the disciples. Here's the beginning of the third missionary journey. Now, it's easy to miss that because it just, Luke just kind of summarizes all of this, all this travel and all this work and all this stay in, in Antioch all in one little sentence. He, he went to Jerusalem, he went to Antioch, he stayed there a little while, and then he started all over again. Third missionary journey is beginning. But what I want to end with today is what's here in, in verses 24 through 28. It says, now there was a Jew named Apollos. And he was a native of Alexandria, that would be in Egypt, and a native of Alexandria, and he had come to Ephesus. Now who did we leave in Ephesus? Priscilla and Aquila, who had been trained and discipled by Paul. Paul left them in Ephesus. Now this guy named Apollos shows up in Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that he was a believer yet, okay? When you talk about being instructed in the way of the Lord, that's an Old Testament term, an Old Testament phrase that just meant, man, he was learned in the Old Testament scriptures, okay? So here he is. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately. 
the things concerning Jesus. So Apollos already has this understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. But he still had some learning to do. Still some things that were still missing. Watch this. So he, he, uh, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he, he had learned up to John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist saying? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he knew that much, but he didn't know about, uh, about the, maybe the death or the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe he didn't know about all the details of Jesus. Maybe he didn't know about the coming of the Holy Spirit because that was not yet revealed to him. And so he only knew about the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So here he is preaching in the synagogue. Guess who's in the synagogue? Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside. Watch this. They took him and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here we got this guy named Apollos. You remember in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church? He's going to say, you know, you guys are divided. Some of you say, well, I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, and I follow Peter. And I... Remember those statements? This is the Apollos that Paul's talking about. This dude that's preaching boldly and accurately the Old Testament. Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, and they disciple him. They help him to see and to understand more fully what Christ accomplished and how the church has been birthed and how that the Holy Spirit had come. And was living and empowering the, the followers of Christ. And so they took him and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here we see some multiplication. Paul comes into Corinth. He disciples Priscilla and Aquila. They leave together. They go to Ephesus. They stay in Ephesus while Paul moves on. And then God sends this guy named Apollos that's going to come under Ananias and Sapphira. Think about the humility that this, this, this Apollos is a great speaker, a great orator, man who's demanding the attention. He's a great debater. He can, he can do it all. And these tent makers show up for church and say, hey, by the way, uh, there's more to the story. It's the Paul Harvey thing. You know, here's the rest of the story. And Apollos is humble enough to listen and to grow. And so he learns from Priscilla and Aquila we're not told how many times they met or, or, or anything like that, but, but they began to disciple him. And then he wished to cross to Achai, and the brothers encouraged him. And they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. Now he's discipling others. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Listen, guys, when, when church is done right, one believer disciples another believer who disciples another believer who disciples another believer, and that's how the church multiplies. I, I see several things in this story that I just want to kind of wrap it up with today. Several, several ordinary people that God uses in some extraordinary ways. First, you've got two tent makers that are willing to be discipled by another tent maker and an itinerant preacher. These, these are people who are business owners, but they say, you know what, the gospel comes first. And twice they left everything to, to follow Jesus. I see two synagogue rulers who are willing to give up their prestige and their position in order to follow Jesus Christ and be his disciple. 
They valued their relationship with Jesus more than any religious position that they could hold. For those, those synagogue rulers, the gospel had to come first. I see Apollos, this eloquent, persuasive speaker, who is willing to humble himself and be taught by others the rest of the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then no sooner does he learn it, and he says, i got to go and i got to tell this to somebody else. Guess where Apollos is going to end up? Right back in Corinth, where Paul just left. Paul lays the foundation in Corinth. Guess who comes and builds upon it? Apollos. But I also see a church, guys. A church over here in Ephesus that's still not quite off the ground yet that Apollos is preaching and teaching to. And Apollos says, y'all, I can't explain this, but God's calling me to go to Corinth. And what does the church do? Say, oh, Apollos, you can't leave us. You can't. You're great. You're brilliant. You're helping us. You can't leave. Not at all. What do they do? They not only encourage him to follow the will of the Lord, but they write him a letter of recommendation and say, take this and, 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 and show it to them and let them know that you have our full support for you coming there. I see Paul who is fearful and yet faithful. Paul who, who, who has this, 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 this occupation with the word where even though he works all day, he's in the word. He's letting the word get inside of him. I see a guy named Titus Justice who says, if I've got it and you need it, God, it's, it's yours because I'm yours. And his house is used to lead many people to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, his house becomes the house church where the gospel is going to, to spread. It's interesting to me that God didn't choose to use Aquila and Priscilla's home where Paul was staying. You know why? Because God was fixing to move Priscilla and Aquila. He uses the home of somebody that's a no-name. It's going to be there a while. So the church can be birthed. Ordinary people, guys. Ordinary people that God is using in extraordinary ways. I see a church that's unselfish and saying, you know what? We're going to be fine because God's going to take care of us. You take the gospel and keep running with it. Keep sharing that gospel. Take the gospel to the the highways and the byways. God will take care of us. You guys feel called? Y'all go, and we'll write you that letter of recommendation. Ordinary people used in extraordinary ways by God. So what occupies us today? What is of utmost importance to us? What is it that eats up our time, our attention, our mind, our, our hearts? What is it that, that occupies us because if we don't identify that, then we're never going to make a change. If we keep doing in our individual lives what we've always done, we're crazy to think that we're going to get some kind of a different result. To, to think that I can keep doing what I've always done and somehow grow into maturity and become what Christ wants me to be is, is, is not realistic. To continue to look at my job as just a place that I go to earn a living and I clock in and I clock out. And then when I get through with work, maybe I can talk to somebody about Jesus. That's ridiculous. To spend eight to ten hours a day with some people that you don't ever talk to about Jesus. Missed opportunities. It's, it's saying, you know what, I've got to figure out how to find this balance. How to, how to find the balance between working and, 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 and studying God's word and still having time to pour it into somebody else. It's... It's, it's looking at Paul and saying, you know what? He's human just like I am. And yet Paul found a way. Paul found a way past his fears. 
He found a way to find that balance of what it's supposed to look like. And, and Paul is, is just an incredible example to us. But Paul was human just like we are. Paul had been beaten and rejected and despised and hurt. He'd been maligned and, and, and falsely accused and spent most of his life as this nomad homeless man just living from place to place. He was hated and he was hunted down. But how did he get past all of that to keep doing what God had called him to do? I think a lot of it had to do with where Paul found his joy. Paul found his joy in following Christ. Paul found his joy in telling others about the grace that had rescued him from that legalistic life. Paul found his joy, his greatest joy, in sharing with others the grace that he had found in Christ. Paul would write with those words in his letters back to these churches saying, you guys are my crown. You guys are my joy. You guys are, are, are my resume, if you will. You are everything to me. Not that he put them above God, but he says, you guys are or what I live for. And Paul reaches into his life and says, man, I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of torn between going on and being with Jesus and staying here and helping you guys. And I, man, I would much rather go and be with the Lord and have all these struggles behind me. But it's for your sake that I stick around. It's for your sake that I continue to trudge through each day and to make it. And, and here's, here's the deal about joy, guys. Whatever my greatest joy is, that's going to be the thing that occupies me. If my greatest joy is having money in the bank, then guess what's going to occupy me? Making money. If my greatest joy is, you name it, fill in the blank, that's going to be the thing that drives me. So we've got to look and say, what's my greatest joy? Is my greatest joy getting to know Jesus? Is it sharing Christ with the world around me? What, what is my greatest joy? Because if my greatest joy is still stuff of this world, my, my own pleasure, my own popularity, my own power, my own stuff that I, that I have, my possessions, I'm not going to sacrifice my greatest joy until I find something else that's a greater joy. So as I look at this this week, my prayer is, Lord, let me, help me, help me to make you my greatest joy. Because the things that bring us joy are worth sacrificing. But I'm not going to sacrifice the stuff of this world till I find a greater joy. And that greater joy is only going to be found in Jesus Christ. Paul found it. And that's how he continued to press on in the face of persecution and opposition. And the only way that you and I will do that is if we find in Christ our greatest joy. If he becomes the treasure of our heart. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So let's pray.